Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we shoot the shit with friend of the pod, Freddie DeBoer, prolific Substack essayist and author of the upcoming book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. We talk about taking social justice politics seriously, the right-wing backlash against woke culture, and the downfall of Twitter. So welcome back to fucking cancel. Welcome back to fucking cancel. We have with us here today, Freddie DeBoer. Yeah, second time on the pod. Welcome, Freddie. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, we're stoked. Always nice to talk to you. So this isn't like one of our official questions, but I just kind of wanted to ask, like, you moved out of New York City. Is that true? I did. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend and I are still in the greater New York metro area. Okay. Um, but we are on, uh, in a suburb, um, which is on, on one of the New York metro lines. So I can hop on a train and be in Manhattan in an hour and a half. Okay. Which, which is nice. Yeah. I... Um, we don't we just realized that we don't really do anything like we, we weren't <laughs> like we weren't going out and like i can't remember the last time i just went to a bar we were spending too much money at restaurants um <clears throat> we only go to museums and stuff three or four times a year and we can do that pretty much just as easily right. now that we moved here and um i was just paying new york city prices for no reason um yeah. <clears throat> you know and now um for like barely more a month than I was paying in rent. Um, I, I'm paying a mortgage on a house. So that's nice. Crazy. So what's it like in the suburbs? It's not so bad. I mean, the thing is, is like, this is like, um, again, we're in a very dense near to New York suburb. Mm -hmm. So um, there's still a lot of walkable stuff. Um, nice. Like I said, access to public transit. Um, uh, like, we don't drive very often, so still sort of got some of the amenities of of uh, at least higher density. But like, I have a, like a basement where I can throw stuff, mm. and uh, I have a backyard and stuff like that, which is really nice. Like, I <laughs> I ran away at seventeen, mm. and I lived in apartments until now when I'm forty two. And I gotta tell you that it's nice to like. I can like th just throw shit in the basement when I don't know where else to put it. You know, I mean, <laughs> another big thing was just like, I was just realizing like, it's a weird thing, but I had just, my mental state was really suffering from never having any space for anything. Totally. Like, like every, like every surface in our apartment was covered with stuff all the time. Mm. And um, I, I just kind of realized that like not being able to sit down and have a meal at the table or that sort of thing. Like it was actually like degrading my quality of life. So mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So you basically you're just in like kind of like a more residential area of New York City. Like, um, well, it's it's in the metro area. Yeah, um, right. outside of the yeah. city limits, but in the in the mm -hmm. metro area. Yeah. So nice, nice. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Moving on up in the world. <laughs> um, so Freddie, listen, you have uh, you have a new book coming out uh, in September, I believe, called "How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement." Is that right? Yeah, that's um, right. It's um, coming how, out on September fifth. How did the elites eat the social justice movement? Sure. So I mean, <laughs> um, 
maybe a better title would have been like how elites keep eating the social justice movement. But mm. um, uh, yes. um, as with my first book, I did not come up with this title. The publishing company did. But um, I uh, the, the answer to that question is simply that um, American grassroots public uh, sort of social justice movements and left movements and progressive movements and <laughs> equal rights movements, et cetera, um, are pretty much always getting sucked up into the machinery of various elements of elite life. The most obvious element of this is the Democratic Party, um, <clears throat> which has a long, long history of um, uh, sort of sucking up grassroots radical movements and sort of co-opting their uh, energy and then sort of just dispersing that into the machinery of the Democratic Party. Um, many people have made the argument that part of the reason why the um, uh, civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s lost a lot of steam was because it became too associated with Democratic politicians. Um, right. uh, but um, it's not just the Democratic Party. Um, one of the things, there's a, a chapter in the book about the nonprofit um, industrial mm -hmm. complex. Um, so these are organizations uh, which has special tax status. Uh, that enables them to not be taxed because they work for ostensibly charitable purposes. Um, and they are uh, a huge sort of source of employment for people who sort of consider mm -hmm. themselves political people or agitators or activists. Um, <clears throat> and in the in the in the book, in the chapter, I'm careful to point out that there's lots of important things that nonprofit organizations do. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, they are institutional sort of organizations, right? Mm -hmm. um, which means that they're self-interested and self-protecting. Um, <clears throat> they always have a first uh, order principle of defending their uh, own existence above and beyond everything else, right? Um, <clears throat> one of the things I've pointed out before is um, smallpox was eradicated in the 1960s. There are still several nonprofits that were dedicated to the eradication of smallpox, which still exist. Um, <clears throat> they have rebranded, right? Uh, but they still continue on, even though their mission was completed right. 50, 60 years ago, right? Because if you look at human behavior, people just don't uh, sort of dissolve their own jobs out from underneath themselves, right? right? They just don't right. say like, oh, hey, we did beat smallpox. No more organization, right? Right. Now that we're not going to take any more of the charitable funding, and now right. people are going to have to pay taxes on this money. Um, they, they say, oh, well, we can find other purposes, you know. Um, but there's also just beyond that, there's, you know, um, like, so I, I just, just spent um, about five or six years working in the uh, tenants' rights movement uh, in mm -hmm. New York City. Um, and again, like the, the nonprofit groups do a lot of good. There's a lot of good people who work there. But like they're always the ones saying, well, let's not go crazy. Right. They're always the ones saying this is too extreme. They're always the ones saying let's moderate. They're the ones saying, no, you can't occupy that um, office of that state senator in, Al in Albany, right? Because they're afraid of institutional and legal consequences for themselves. Um, right. Most of them, even the ones that are sort of staffed by radicals, essentially function as uh, extensions of the Democratic Party. Um, so that's just another example of the sort of thing, mm -hmm. way that the sort of elites sort of co-opt uh, radical energy. And I think that probably the, the 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 last one that I would mention right off the top of my head is what we've seen uh, over and over again in the last 
certainly the last three years since 2020, which is um, corporate embrace mm -hmm. of what were, were or are ostensibly radical movements and radical dialogue. So, I mean, I think pride <laughs> is an example that everybody right. cites, excuse me. The fact that Bank of America is at pride events handing out pens or whatever, right, <laughs> um, speaks to a inherent de-radicalization of what pride is and was. Um, but also you can look at um, <clears throat> uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020, mm -hmm. where um, there was suddenly intense public pressure to be seen to do something. And so these organizations, these, these, right. these corporations, they put out diversity statements, right? Um, they hire more Black employees. Um, they update the employee guidebook on the appropriate language to be used. And you can sort of say, well, all of those sort of specific things are not objectionable in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, what this does is it just sort of looks like society addressing what are fundamentally systemic issues. And none of these are systemic solutions. Mm -hmm. Probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we really look forward to reading the book. Um, and hopefully we can have you back on to talk about it more when it comes mm -hmm. out. But um, we'll definitely put the link in the show notes <clears throat> for people to go get their copy. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, but so, yeah, we're going to ask you a couple questions that are based out of an article that you had on your Substack recently that's called, Are Social Justice Politics Serious or Not? Um, mm -hmm. So the first question that I wanted to ask you is more just like about language, because in this article and obviously elsewhere, you've talked about identity politics. And mm -hmm. on this podcast, we usually make a distinction between identity politics on the one hand and what we call identitarianism on the other. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for this is just because, and I think I think that you are basically, I think that the way that you're using ident identity politics in this article basically is how we use identitarianism. So I just kind of wanted to like check to see if my comprehension is right, because Basically, you said many times that like there's many aspects of social justice politics that you're obviously in favor of, such as like right. you like gay rights and you think feminism is cool and stuff like right. that. It's like not it's not that you have an issue with like, you know, um, people of various identity groups fighting for their rights. Um, and that's basically what we call identity politics. But identitarianism in the distinction that we make is like when identity becomes like the sole lens of understanding power and all political struggle is happening through the lens of identity at all times. And we think that just like shifting identities around in like positions of like hiring more people of this identity is somehow going to have this effect at a larger societal level um, of, of correcting these issues. And also that it goes into this very essentialist place where we talk about identity groups as if they are monoliths, as if they have like very essential and shared qualities or um perspectives so i just wanted to ask you about that and if you think that i'm right that you're probably using identity politics how we use identitarianism and if you think that there's a like any use to the distinction that i'm talking about here yeah i mean i think that that sounds right i mean look i i, I would say that um typically when i when i talk about identity politics mm -hmm. um if i'm using the term derisively what i mean is um uh, the practice of politics, seeing identity in terms of uh, racial identity, gender identity, uh, ethnic identity, et cetera, religious identity, um, <clears throat> as being the currency mm -hmm. of politics, as being the unit yeah. of measure, right? Um, you wouldn't say, right, generically, that a microscope is good and a telescope is bad, right? It's not It's not like those those tools sort of are 
a superior to one another or inferior to one another. It's that you are looking at different levels of right. perspective when you're using them. Identity politics make sense mm-hmm. in certain kinds of applications. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of good work that has been done in academia and in politics uh, under the banner of what I would call identity politics in trying to understand how identity issues mm-hmm. influence and dictate um, various elements of the human experience and sort of the political experience. The problem is always trying to apply that as the only lens yeah. right, for anything, which I think is what you call identitarianism. Yeah. Um, I mean, identity politics always has a fundamental sort of political problem beyond any other kind of like analytical problem. And when I say political, I don't just mean in terms of political analysis, but I mean a political problem in terms of like, um, how are you going to make any change, right? Mm-hmm. Because the problem is, is that identities are small, right? In other words, like mm-hmm. the, the very, the 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 definition of these identity groups um, <clears throat> is by narrowing down the human uh, condition into something that's very small. Now, again, just like sometimes you need a microscope, right? Sometimes you need to be able to look at that level. Right. But the problem is that once you have then narrowed it down to the point where everyone is in these extremely tiny little niches, you have an inherent political problem because- Politics is about rallying big masses of people. So if mm-hmm. like there's one consistent overriding failure of identity politics is that it's just real, real hard to use identity politics to get the kind of mass movements going that we need to create change. Okay, so this leads directly into our next question. And I think like you'll be able to expand on this, which is good. Um, so in in the same essay, you discuss how you know, critiques of identity politics have been made by socialists for a long time. And you write, identity politics and socialist politics are not incidentally at odds, but are rather inherently and existentially incompatible, which is a bold (laughs) statement. Um, The heart of left-wing practice is communitarianism, putting the group before the individual. And the fundamental complaint of identity politics is, hey, what about me? So uh, can you say more about this? Um, I'm sure that you you can sort of like understand why people might um, do a double take at such a statement. Yeah, sure. Um, Look, um, what has been the drift of what we call identity politics over time? In other words, if you look at uh, how identity politics writ large are chopping up the human experience over time, Uh they're not moving from more and more finely graded and tight and focused to a broader perspective. The movement is always the opposite. Yeah. Right. In other words, if you look, if you go looking at like the academic literature, of any particular sort of slice of identity that we might want to look at. They don't go from sort of saying, well, yeah, you know, there's gay and straight, trans and cis, uh, there's asexual people, and there are, you know, all these other uh, categories of people. But really, we're all human beings. And, you know, in in the the final analysis, you know, what matters is that we have the shared humanity. The the, the movement is always the opposite, right? Uh In academia, the incentive is always to say, we're going to look tighter and tighter and tighter. So, um, <clears throat> you know, you're not just a queer person in the new broader right. sense of queer, not meaning specifically gay, but just sort of differently gendered or differently sexual, et cetera, et cetera right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you are demi-asexual or whatever, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. demi-ace-gray-sexual gray, 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 or whatever aromantic, it is. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> that sort of thing... Um, is indeed inimical to the socialist project, the radical project, um, for a few reasons. Like, uh, again, like the basic 
lefty radical socialist message, political message is always the same. There's, there's one overriding message to people. Um, you two might not look the same mm-hmm. and you might not even like each other, but you have shared economic reason to come together, right? And we can look at this, for example, <clears throat> in the history of trade unions, where you often had trade unions where um, there was a clear division socially and culturally and politically between black and white members of the union, right? And yet those people didn't hang out, right? They weren't they weren't going to each other's homes, right, and cracking open beers. But despite those tensions and those divisions, they all paid dues, they voted in the union elections, and when the time came to strike, they would strike, right? Not because they liked each other, but because they understood that their shared power was only real if they worked together. And the problem, again, with gray, ace, demisexual or whatever is, that's wonderful if that's your identity, right? <clears throat> but there's probably, you know, 500 of you in the United States, right? Like just in terms of trying to forge a, an identity, it's, it's really hard to do. And I think that this sort of sort of looks back at sort of this pride issue, right? Where mm. um, <clears throat> for all of its faults, right? Modern pride is an attempt to say, like, look, we have shared interests, we have shared enemies, and we need to come together in order to sort of for sort of mutual defense. I would say that like the fundamental issue with modern pride <clears throat> is not that it has that function of trying to bring everybody together. Mm-hmm. The problem with, problem with modern pride is um, it doesn't mean anything at this point because it's been so sort of saturated with bullshit and there's just there's so much sort of pulling against it any sort of coherent political message that it can't accomplish anything. But that's the right movement. And so Look, um, <clears throat> racism is a wholly distinct human problem and a wholly distinct in- human injustice that we have to fight, right? Mm-hmm. Out of We have a moral necessity to fight it. And you can continue to sort of peel the layers of that onion. I think anti-Black racism in particular is a completely unique and completely uniquely pernicious form of racism within the subheading of racism. And it's correct, it's perfectly right and correct for people to take that as like the object of their analysis and say, I want to understand this problem. The the, the fundamental failing of modern identity politics is that they then don't do the next step, which is to say, however, even though being Black entails a level of oppression that's unlike anything else for any other person or a kind of oppression – um, the only way things are going to get better for black people is if they if they can come together with other people who are oppressed and so, da, 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 da. it doesn't take that next step. And I think that modern identity politics are really inimical to that because they keep telling you you need to understand your own suffering as entirely unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this whole thing that people say to us all the time when we're talking about building solidarity across difference where they're basically just like, we shouldn't have to. That's like the attitude. Right. We shouldn't have to organize <clears throat> with people, you know, who who might be assholes to us in some way or whatever. And I'm like, it's kind of like whether or not you should have to, you do have to. Because like the simple reality is, is that we uh, really do need to have mass numbers if we're going to make anything happen. So mm-hmm. yeah, I totally see what you're saying there. So in this article, I'm just going to quote you at yourself again. Um, You you say that social justice politics is a set of policy positions and moral precepts, like any other political movement, 
but it's also a set of discursive tools. And one of its central tools has always been a vo vociferous, sorry, vociferous, vociferous. <laughs> rejection of criticism, typically enforced through bringing intense social and professional sh shunning to bear. And so I know that this topic is like kind of boring at this mm -hmm. point, um, but this is fucking canceled. So we're going to touch on it. Um, and I think the way that you worded this is really interesting because it is very specific to the way that social justice politics works, that it's not just a set of like political ideas that you are free to like disagree with, argue with, criticize, but that built into it is this like taboo that you're like not allowed to criticize it. So what I want to ask you is like, how do you suggest that people um, face this risk because if we do want to move forward, I think that there's going to need to be some political discourse and some disagreement. Um, but the costs of doing that kind of public disagreement are still high. So mm -hmm. do you have thoughts about how people can sort of take that on? Yeah. I mean, I think you do have to use, use your head and I think there's a lot of vulnerable people. I would say that if you are, for example, a graduate student in the humanities and you intend on going on the academic job market <laughs> in the next couple of years, I would just like you know, hold my tongue until I had tenure, right? Like I would be very careful. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but that being said, I do think things have thawed considerably, mm -hmm. although it's unevenly distributed and you can still get in a lot of trouble in a lot of places. But I do think people are getting away with things that they wouldn't have gotten away with before. And yeah. look, I sold this book in August of 2022. I could not have sold it in August of 2021, right? Yeah. Like um, Simon and Schuster, I, I just really doubt would have signed to the book at that stage, because things are very different then. Um, you know, I, I think it's just important to say, like, a big part of the problem here is that these discourses are discourses that are designed for in-group communication and not out-group communication. So mm. you have the 1960s and you have this growth of radicalism and you have second wave feminism and you have um, all of these sort of radical movements <clears throat> that sort of coalesce and come together. And then in some time in the 1970s, and then certainly at the beginning of the 1980s, you have um, <clears throat> the sort of the setting in of a full-throated sort of backlash and a whole, whole number of fronts. This is represented most obviously in Reaganism and the presidency of, of Ronald Reagan. Um, but uh, it's a big cultural force. You have things like Susan Faludi writing the book Backlash, which is about the backlash of second wave feminism and how... Um, a lot of those gains were lost. You also had constant in infighting between the different groups. Um, you know, Hunter S. Thompson famously wrote in Fear and Loving in Las Vegas that this this section where he talks about the 70s and the radical foment, and he's talking about how um, if you stand in the right place, you can see where the uh, the wave rose and then uh, crashed and then broke back, like, you know, that, that everything sort of fell back. Um, and uh, the way that a lot of politically minded people in a lot of these movements sort of responded to this failure was to go internal, right? So the universities are a really big part of this, which is um, <clears throat> everybody sort of uh, like the sort of the discourses of radical feminism and, and uh, radical anti-racism, et cetera, sort of decamped for the interiors of comfortable uh, humanities departments um, in universities where they could be more or less be safe. Um, because, you know, universities are sort of places outside of culture and time. And what happens when you're in those environments, mm. not just on universities, but like within nonprofit groups, or if you're like, you know, if you're part of like a, 
a Berkeley, you know, queer, um, militant queer organization, whatever. If you're in these places, you are essentially in places that are free of the outside world. And so you start to develop a discourse that's just for just for you between you and and other people. right? Right. In other words, you develop this sort of totally internal thing because, you know, you've convinced yourself that you are sort of within this enclave and you can be safe in that enclave. When that happens, you inevitably start to see the development of these um, really intense sort of social social rules about like you can and cannot say this thing and you can and cannot say that thing. And if you violate these norms, you'll be shunned and sort of professionally destroyed, whatever. Um, <laughs> as I think that the uh, the influence of somebody like Chris Rufo, who's this um, evil Republican activist who's been doing all sorts of things in Florida, like marching through Florida's university system and uprooting, you know, people that whose politics he doesn't like. Um, that only lasts for so long. But while you're in that sort of enclave, right, you just, you have no need and no reason to appeal to uh, the, you know, to the majority, which usually involves a certain level of respect for disagreement. And so like, you can you can get a sense of how this works. Go to any Reddit subreddit you want, mm-hmm. right? Like go to any internet forum that's devoted to a particular community. You go to like, you know, um, the uh, the subreddit devoted to Gilmore Girls or whatever the fuck, right? What you're going to find is it's not a lot of people saying like, you know, Gilmore Girls is great. But let's not go too crazy with this, right? Or, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, Kilbrook Horse is a good show, but it's not that great of a show. No, what you're going to yeah. find in right. that kind of a discursive community is the people who are rewarded are the people saying, this is the best fucking show that ever existed. And anyone who talks bad about it, we're going to destroy, right? Like, th- that's a natural yeah. human thing. And like coming up with like special acronyms for it and yeah. like that no one else can understand and inside jokes and memes and all yeah. this. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the stakes are just much, much higher when it's like, you know, fighting racism as compared to Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, we've also noticed that there's this kind of downtrend in how seriously the like really hyper cancelly types are being taken um, mm-hmm. in in sort of like the broader mainstream, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you're right that like in 2020, it was like, absolutely like everyone's brain was melted. Um, in 2021, I think everyone was sort of like living in this like shock and awe sort of like fear. Um, and then it, it thought like it did thought, you know, I think that it's still, it still can have like really insane consequences kind of mm-hmm. sp- sporadically, you know, um, and people are still having their lives like totally blown up, including sometimes when they have fucking tenure. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah. Why, why do you think that that thought take is taking place? And uh, I guess you also noticed that, like, uh, what do you yeah. think is going on there? I mean, I, I would, the way that I would put it is that like the thaw is real, but it is very unevenly implied. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that's like, accurate. Yeah. There's a lot, still a lot of people who are profoundly vulnerable to, um, cancellation and to, um, getting shunned personally, professionally, socially, et cetera, for having the wrong political opinions. Um, but I do think that there has been a bit of a thaw. Um, the first thing is like, um, and I, I get why people think this is an inflammatory comparison, but it's a lot like 9-11 to me, which is um, there's a, you know, after 9-11, one thing that people would say was thing, were things like, we must be constantly vigilant. You must have constant vigilance, right? Like, because we have to be on the lookout for terrorism. Uh-huh. And you'd say, okay, where where are we are we concentrating and looking the closest? They'd say we're going to look closely everywhere, right? Um, and the thing about it is that like you you can't do that, right? right? Like you you can't 
give special attention to everything because then it's not special attention. Right. If vigilance can't be constant because it's not, then it's not a vigilance, right? Vigilance is like a temporary state. Um, <clears throat> people just got exhausted. A lot of people are just exhausted. And the thing that's really important to say is it's not just the targets of cancellation that got exhausted, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, you have sort of the, the canceled, like us, you have <laughs> sort of the cancelers, right? The really yeah. aggressive prosecutors, right? Yeah. But there's the by far the biggest part is like this third section of people who are people who are not themselves inclined to actively yeah. cancel someone, but who are scared not to participate when cancellation time comes. Yeah. Right. And um, <clears throat> I think they just got their synapses fried, right? They're like, you can't, yeah. if, if you're a journalist, big time journalist, and you know, you work for a major place and you're successful, you work for New York uh, Magazine or the Atlantic or the New York or the New York Times or the Washington Post, um, and you enjoy like, like career success. But it's also mm-hmm. it's extremely vulnerable to cancellation at any time, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> you log on to Twitter because that's like the internal communication of your entire industry. And it's really yeah. important, you feel, professionally for you to be clued into that. And every single day, right, somebody's the target of, this, of these things. Yeah. Somebody's getting scourged every single day. Sooner or later, your nervous system is going to be so fried out you can't do it anymore. <clears throat> but I also think it's important to say, and this is a point that I make in the book, is um, people are sensitive to inconsistency when it comes to justice. Mm. And this stuff has never been consistent, right? Yeah. Some yeah. people get away with shit you can't believe it. Yeah. And some people get crushed for things that are much, much smaller, right? So um, <clears throat> look at, for example, the difference between Woody Allen and Neil deGrasse Tyson, Right. So Woody Allen has a single accusation against him from his ex-stepdaughter, uh, Dylan Farrow, who's saying that he molested her, I believe, what she said when she was three years old. Um, that's completely set aside, like, the, act- the, the accusation itself and whether it's true or whatever. It's made Woody Allen a pariah. Um, <clears throat> nobody will work with him. Amazon stopped funding his, his, his movies and essentially cut him several hundred million dollar check because they were going to break their uh, contract they had signed with him. And the, so that one accusation from 30 years ago, um, <clears throat> uncorroborated, he denies that has torpedoed his career. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and again, I have no idea if, the, if these accusations right. are true, but mm-hmm. he was accused by multiple women of sexual misconduct, um, <clears throat> including uh, sexually inappropriate co- uh, co- uh, comments that were caught on camera. I mean, we have the video. He was also accused of drugging and raping a grad school classmate. Um, He is an academic. He's the head scientist at the Natural History Museum in New York. He's got a, you know, I think he probably has like, you know, a dozen like other like academic uh, sort of appointments at various places on, you know, he uh, had a TV show. He's got a couple of podcasts, whatever. Um, Those accusations came out and just nothing happened to him, right? Like, it was very strange to me. It was at, like, the height of Me Too. Uh, it was multiple accusers. Who yeah, accused I didn't him even of, hear about that. He, he accused him of some ser- really serious stuff. Um, and he kept his cushy job, and he kept his uh, podcast and show, and he kept all of his, I think he has, like, 20 honorary doctorates. But also, like, 
he's still like just Mr. Science Man, you know, like mm-hmm. he still gets just gets pulled. You, know, you, you still just see him pop up in a Netflix documentary where mm-hmm. he's like, oh, Mr. Science Man. And like his his uh, reputation seemed not to have changed at all. Right. Right. Now, I, I don't know if that, those allegations are true. I have no interest in like prosecuting. Yeah. Like yeah, Tyson. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is, is like, um, like human beings are just really like invested in the idea that justice should be dispensed equally right. and fairly. And there's all these examples where some people got their careers destroyed um, and some people just skated entirely and no one can explain why. I mean, another good example is um, Mike Tyson, who um, <clears throat> Robin Gibbons uh, has graphically described how terribly he used to beat her when she was his girlfriend. Uh, he was convicted of raping an 18 year old. But he's just in all these projects as like, hey, it's Mike Tyson, what a wacky figure. And it's like, well, how, how does that how does that fit with any of the rest of this shit? And I think that that sort of thing, I just think you know, a lot of people are just really disillusioned and realizing mm-hmm. that like there's politics to all of this. Who gets picked and who doesn't is often completely arbitrary. So mm-hmm. it's hard to take seriously. Yeah. And I also think that especially like for people who aren't celebrities and who aren't like who are just regular people, they often get their lives tanked over like very, very minor accusations, like nothing like the serious stuff that you're talking mm-hmm. about here, like very minor accusations about having said something online or like having not said something online that they were supposed to say or something like that. And like a lot of the canceled people that we talk to have been canceled for like the most bizarre, like non reasons, you know, but like mm-hmm. they have no protection against it because they're not mm-hmm. they don't have money. They don't have lawyers. They don't have anything. And so they watch their lives go totally up in smoke over like a really minor accusation. And then there's other situations where there's like much more serious allegations um, and nothing happens. And I see people try to do this like weird math to try to figure out like why some people get super canceled and others don't. Like there's people who believe that it's like people who are like marginalized, like get away with stuff. Um, And then there's other people who are like, it's people who are more privileged to get away with stuff. And like from me having witnessed so many cancellations, I'm like, I don't, I think it's kind of random. It's like a whole bunch of different factors in any given circumstance that like leads to it sometimes being horrible and other times kind of just disappearing. Totally. Um, You you know who Gwen Butler is from Arcade Fire? You know, that is like, he's so he's a guy who got canceled and, um, I think the allegations were printed in Pitchfork. I read the article. I could not tell you what the actual allegations yeah. are. It's like he, he was um, like being no horny. one is alleging that he that he raped them. No one is alleging that he had sex with them when they were underage. No one is alleging that he coerced them. But just that like he was creepy or manipulative or whatever. And it's just yeah. like, okay, but that, that's not. But then meanwhile, like um, Chris Brown nearly beat yeah. rihanna to death yes and it was just sort of like he was canceled for a little while and he just sort of got let back in totally. and people like they have him guest on there to help him and stuff i don't get it yeah it's yeah. interesting this is probably like the most we've ever talked about like celebrity cancellation it's stuff true. on this on yeah. this show um okay so also in this article you talk about how like you respect people by taking their politics seriously so i really like this point because I think that like condescending or fear-based deference is actually like really disrespectful. Um, Mm -hmm. And that if we actually want to, you know, if social justice culture or social justice politics are so important, and I mean, they play an important role in our lives today, then we should be able to take them seriously and actually engage with them in a serious way. So what does taking social justice politics seriously look like? Um, It means that like, 
you hold them to the same standards as you hold anybody else, right? I mean, one of the things, again, like, so you look at, like, the world of media, right? Elite media. Um, <clears throat> almost everybody is a lefty, right? If you if you work in elite media, you're either, like, work specifically for a conservative publication like National Review, um, excuse me, or you are some species of left of center person ranging from liberal to socialist, whatever. Um, if you look at how those people engage with politics all day long, again, they're on Twitter and they are, you know, calling out any article that appears for the smallest possible mistake. And they're, uh, you know, looking to make sure every argument is ironclad and they're engaged in constant battle with each other. And they're always getting into sort of friendly fire experiences with other people on their side about who's got the right opinion about how to sort of prosecute the case for socialism or for whatever um, but they just will not critically engage with things written from a social justice perspective, right? And these are people who are are sympathetic to the causes of social justice, but don't really practice that kind of discourse. If you look at how they treat social justice, it's like they're the JV, right? It's like it's like it's like the way that parents cheer at like a eight year old t-ball game or whatever, right? It's like you you just sort of show broad, vague positivity without actually engaging in the question of like, do these kids suck at t-ball or not, right? <laughs> um, now, I think there's just a couple things going on there, right? One mm -hmm. again, it's like the fear of cancellation. It's just like, I'm just not gonna stick my, right. my finger in the socket. I've seen what happens to other people. Lee Fung, um, who was at The Intercept at the time, you know, um, he just posted an interview with a black man during the whole Black Lives Matter thing in 2020. He posted an interview of a black person who was talking about the, the guy, the black guy, the interviewee, not Lee Fung, was saying, you know, uh, why don't we take black on black crime as, as seriously as we take police violence? And for posting an interview of someone yeah. else um, that he very nearly lost his job. So just a lot of people are like, I'm just not not doing that. But also, I think that they also just sort of like they have a lot of real personal condescension that they sort of hide behind this sort of benevolent. Oh, of course, I love social justice thing. Right. Like they mm -hmm. they don't think that those uh, arguments are strong and they don't feel like those those arguments can hold up to uh, to scrutiny. And so they don't subject them to scrutiny. And to me, you know, um, I respect people in the world of anti-racism for example, or feminism or queer studies or whatever, I respect their project so much that I'm very willing to say this shit is stupid and you need to try again. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's so disrespectful because I'm like, I do want people to take seriously like something like racism. I mean, like if you are really upset about racism, like I'm like, good. But then you actually have to think about like the proposals that are being made and like think about it closely and deeply and seriously and like follow it follow it through to the end and be like, does this actually make sense? Like, is what's being suggested here actually effectively like leading us in the direction of like, you know, having less racism in the world? And yeah, I get into so much trouble all the time for like just having an opinion on any of these things because people right. are like, how dare you stay in your lane, you know? And I'm like, well, my lane is sort of like being a responsible citizen in the world who wants to think carefully and deeply about ideas so that I can be in my integrity. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not allowed. So yeah, it's true. I mean, if you're if you're like out here writing these sort of like completely incoherent screeds um, that have obviously paid like no attention to any of the subjects that you're talking about and so on, and no one around you is willing to be like, yeah. that doesn't make any fucking sense. They don't respect you. Yeah. 
like right yeah fully yeah um <clears throat> and i mean look like uh the premise under which i sold this new book is just that like from the, the, the distance of three years like clearly it didn't work right i mean I, I think that like at some point you have to just sort of acknowledge that the demand was for a totally transformed society and society was not totally transformed yeah which means that on the terms of the protesters themselves the protests failed right like you like there's there's got to be some acknowledgement that um if you yourself as a movement set the bar to total transformation of society and what you get instead is like um <clears throat> planned parenthood putting out a defund the police statement for whatever fucking reason or um like a lot of uh investment banks right talking about how much they care about black bodies like you failed right and so if you fail like then the question is, is what can we do different right right yes but well, the problem is the, uh... They got the black and brown stripes put on the pride flag. So it's true. It's a big one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's a win. So at some point, like, you know, um, I think that there's also a lot of people who are of the social justice set who are frustrated and who have an acknowledgement that the current approach isn't working. Mm -hmm. It's just like disseminating your ideas via Tumblr and, um, just screaming at anyone who criticizes the wrong people has just what whatever political potential it has has long since been exhausted and they want to change things too but the problem is is like it's hard to be in that culture and to be the one saying hey guys our tactics aren't working yeah totally yeah definitely so in the article you also talk about the um this like really ugly vicious right-wing backlash against like quote-unquote woke culture that's going on in the u.s right now also i would argue kind of worldwide um yeah and leftists who critique social justice politics are often conflated with this like how how do you think leftists should respond like both to the right-wingers who are completely losing their minds and having like these wild meltdowns about like Mm -hmm. the wokes um and to the accusation that we too are like right-wing or even fascists um by having sincere criticisms of social Mm -hmm. justice politics what do you think about that I mean, I would just say that, like, uh, ideas matter, right? And your policy positions matter, you know? Um, I don't go around giving myself the title of feminist because I think it's a little annoying when men do that. But certainly I aspire to feminism. And um, often when someone will sort of accuse me of being anti-feminist or holding those perspectives, I'll say, okay, uh, tell me an issue Mm. related to feminism where you and I disagree. Right. And we'll go through and we'll talk about abortion and we'll talk about equal pay for equal work and we'll talk about the division of house labor and we'll talk, you know, all those things. Um, and they can't name a single thing that we disagree about. Right. They, 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 they can't. I mean, that's often true just generally. Right. Like one of the things I do all the time when I get pulled into these arguments is like when someone say, oh, you're such a fact, you say, OK, like name an issue, a specific issue of substance on which you and I disagree. And it's amazing how often they just can't do it, right? Despite the fact that they think that we're just fundamentally different people. And the reason is right. because like, you know, part of the problem with <clears throat> contemporary politics is that the internet has forced us to think about it all in this sort of sense of like affinity groups and like, are you on my vibes. team or not? Vibes, vibes. Yeah, right. On vibes, are you on my team? Are you like, are, are we cool together? Are we friends? But that's not what politics is about. So you just, you continue to assert like, hey, look, um, so for personally, you know, um, I'm a big believer in uh, reparations for slavery. 
Um, I've always been a believer in affirmative action as a uh, tool to address uh, historical uh, injustice uh, in the world of hiring and of college admissions. Um, I support uh, really extensive police and prosecutorial reform. I think the whole system of criminal justice has to be torn up from the roots and redone. Um, and so you just you, you just you just remind yourself and everybody else of who you mm. are and sort of where you stand on these issues. But um, look, uh, <clears throat> conservatives are I would I would sort of let everyone know this is actually as as insane as they are mm -hmm. and as disruptive as all this has been. This is actually a potentially fertile moment for us. Because mm. conservatives are letting go of core elements of conservatism to fixate on uh, trans women in bathrooms, right? Like right. they are fucking losing their shit over drag shows and like what's in school libraries. Um, Donald Trump, part of the reason that he won is that he told people he was going to protect Social Security and Medicare, right? Now, this is sort of bad for us because... He did the popular thing, right? But it's also good for us in the sense that we had just had like 12 years or whatever it was, 10 years of Paul Ryan before before Trump assist. We had like 10 years of Paul Ryan, like making the default Republican position. We have to gut Medicare and Social Security, right? Um, but it turns out that like Republican voters don't care about gutting Medicare and Social Security. In fact, they prefer that you wouldn't. What they care about is, will you crush my enemies, Right. Like will will you will you crush drag queens and will you will you become a culture war period culture mm -hmm. war? The more that Republicans, the more that conservatives crawl deeper into a culture war hole, the more they're sort of seeding ground on actual core issues. Right now, look, culture war issues are important too. Roe v. Wade is gone, and that sucks, mm -hmm. right? And that's a really big deal. On the other hand, abortion rights are now. Uh, proving once again to be extremely popular across the United States. There's been mm -hmm. victory after victory for for uh, abortion rights since the end of Roe v. Wade. It's been a great fundraising tool. So yes, conservatives are crazy, but they were always crazy, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, take advantage of the mo moment as you can, but please don't pretend that everybody who is e not Ibram Kendi is therefore necessarily Ron right. DeSantis, right? Like there's there aren't just two people or two perspectives in the world. Totally. Yeah. Like, do you have a sense? This is kind of just like random, but I'm like, do you have a sense of like what we should do about these conservatives? Like, do you feel like there's a way of reaching these people who are freaking out about drag queens and stuff like this? Because like, I feel like we kind of need to reach them at a certain point because capitalism mm -hmm. is very big and very strong, you know, and these are also workers. And like, I am interested in being like, hey, guys, you're freaking out about drag queens. The world is on fire. Um, Is there a way that like, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Like how we? Can I mean, look, it's all it's always a it's always a matter of degree, right? Like there are people that we will not reach, and we should not worry about reaching because they really are just, you know, insane. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people are low information, right? right? Okay, like, yes. Most people engage with politics on a very superficial level. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's in it's a famously sort of consistent finding, right? That, for example, you ask people, "Do you want big government or small government?" and they say small government, and then you say, "Okay, would you cut any of these programs?" and you say, like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps, 
public transport, uh, public education. Like you just go through all the land, they say, no, 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 we can't cut any of that, right? So they're in favor of right. small government, but they're opposed to cutting anything in the government, right? right. That's just the, the sort of thing that is just like, or should we should we have a balanced budget? Yes, of course we should balance the budget. Okay, should we raise taxes or cut Medicare or Social Security? We should do neither. Okay, okay well, like you know, you're in favor of a balanced budget and also not, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> there's people who we can reach and people who we can't. Um, I think that you know, look to a large degree, um, they're freaking out about drag queens right now because. That's what the conservative messaging machine is telling them to freak out about. Right. I, I really don't think. Um, <clears throat> well, I shouldn't say that. I think that there's a lot of people who um, are, sort of react to politics as they're compelled to by the news cycle. Mm -hmm. um, I can guarantee you that there's many, many, many like conservative moms who always vote Republican and who post on Facebook about trans people in bathrooms, whatever, but they never miss an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, right? right. And, it, it, it will, and it just will never, it will never occur to them, right? To, to sort of, to sort of see that, that contradiction. I think there's always people we can pull off and we have to, right? There's just no, mm -hmm. all, all that politics is, is con convincing people who believe stupid things. Um, but again, like, look, the macro picture in, in American politics is that, uh, Democrats are popular on economic issues and unpopular on social issues. Mm. Conservatives are popular on social issues and unpopular on economic issues. The bizarre thing is that conservatives run on the social issues that they're popular with and Democrats run on the social issues that they're unpopular with. Right. Right. Um, the, I think I think there, there are very few actually committed sort of Republicans to the core sort of like cut taxes, low regulation on businesses, which is like the core of Republican practice. Like remember Donald Trump, mm. the ultimate cultural warrior, he only passed one serious, like one significant piece of legislation in his time in office. And that was a, a tax cut for the wealthy, right? Which is which is not a, a, a coincidence. So you got to pull who you can. Um, <clears throat> I, I would like to think that not everybody participating in this insanity actually hates gay people or actually yeah. hates, you know, <clears throat> um, but I would like, you know, it's, it's just unfortunate. Like it, you've got all this hate. And so you have to sort of like defend everything that's happening in the world of like drag or whatever, even as drag sort of becomes more mainstream and corny, which is kind of, a, 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 you know, unfortunate <laughs> for me, but totally, <laughs> it's all like so stupid. Um, you go, yeah, I'm telling I, you, you go, I'm sure there's really cool like underground drag clubs in New York. But if you go to like uh, your average like Manhattan drag show these days, the whole fucking audience is like drunk bachelorette parties, partiers, oh right? God. Like it's like it's like wine moms in town for the weekend, right? Like it's just become so uncool. But it's like, <laughs> but you have to defend it, right? Because conservatives are so insane about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're losing it. Um, I, it was you, I think. I'm pretty sure it was you who wrote that. Like uh, when we're talking about especially like trans issues, but a lot of this, like uh, just stuff around like queer shit in general, that um, the way to get through to Republicans and conservatives in general is just to talk about it as like a freedom of speech issue, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And like a freedom of expression issue, because it's like, you know, and, and so many of these people, even if they are currently having like a fucking meltdown about it, as soon as you're sort of like, well, you know, shouldn't be able 
people will be able to say whatever they want. They're like, well, yeah, just like not around, like there shouldn't, my kids shouldn't have to be forced into the drag camps. Um, right. You know what I mean? And then it's like, okay, well they're not. So it's like basically fucking fine, man, you know? Um, and like, I don't but know. But also don't I, give I do... them ammunition also, right? So like, um, because they're so crazy, right? The the urge is always to say that there's literally nothing to any of the things that they're talking about. Mm. So there's fixation mm. on school libraries, right? Mm. I'm a complete civil libertarian about all this stuff. My parents raised us. We could watch any movie, read any book whenever we wanted to, because their their perspective was like, look, if they get scared or if there's something sexual or whatever, it's just going to prepare them better for life and they'll and they'll and they'll be okay. I don't know if, if I have ended up being okay, but I you know <laughs> thanks for um I wouldn't take anything out of any any um school libraries. It's worth saying. I'm trying to say, I get, I get them mixed up. There's a book called, um, this book is gay and one called Gender Queer. Yeah, okay. So this book is gay, I think. Um, like, so, you know, 99% of the, the objectionable content sort of that's being talked about here doesn't have anything remotely objectionable. This book is gay does like identify itself as a manual for having gay sex. And it does, for example, tell kids how to, give what they calls handies or blowies and it does sort of say hey sneak your sneak a, a cell phone so that you can look on gay sex apps or whatever now the author of that book she said it's not appropriate for seven or eight year olds and right. i think what happened was it ended up on some library reading list for seven or eight year olds or whatever but like that's just somebody being lazy right that's not like right. a, yeah, like, yeah. A, like an organized conspiracy but the thing is what happens is that like conservatives talk about that stuff and people are so inclined to say conservatives are just lying about all this and they're just right. crazy or whatever. So they say, oh, there's nothing adults in these books. And it's literally like, here's how to give a blowjob, you know? Yeah. And uh, or they'll they'll post screen grabs, like pictures of from the book. And they say, oh, those are doctored. Those are photoshops. But they're but they're not. It's in the book. I've, I've read the book. Um, and it's like it's the sort of thing where it's just like, don't like don't give them the the ammo. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. like I, I think that you can say like. We shouldn't be purging anything from any student libraries, but also we probably shouldn't have a book that the author herself says is not for kids that young. Um, <clears throat> we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't have that book on a list of, of kids of, you know, sure. you know, whatever, but it's just like, once you get into this oppositional position, right? Nobody wants to budge and no one wants to, to suggest that the other side has anything worth saying. Totally. Yeah. I often think with this stuff, I, I, this thorny, like, gender conversation I mm -hmm. often think about religion as an analogy where I'm just like I feel like we need to move back to tolerance instead of being like everybody has to be super down with drag it's like drag for some <laughs> you know miniature yeah. American flags for others right, you know yeah. and and I'm just like you know I think people are, are not going to be happy like I think our side of the street in this like I'm talking about the queers like our side of the street is that like we also need to practice tolerance and we need to understand that like what is our culture is not going to be everybody else's culture and like that's okay and like I think that there's a way of doing this where it's like you know uh the way that religious people raise their kids is like super weird to me and I'm not going to be raising my kids like that and like but I can I can have like tolerance and respect for difference and I think we could probably do a lot more of that and then there'd be a lot less drama I don't yeah. know I mean I, yeah I uh <clears throat> I think part of this is also just like the mon the monoculture, like the internet has just sort of dissolved all these lines, like geographical lines and social lines. Like it used to just be the case mm. that like none yeah. of this shit would come up because 
you know, drag shows were in like, you know, totally. underground bars in San Francisco or, or or New York, right? And now like drag is everywhere, but also like, you know, um guys with in fucking weirdo gun clubs, right? We're just like they were in some fucking hole in Alabama right. that we didn't have to worry about. But now everybody is always <laughs> together right. all the time, right? Yeah. It's just like this this 21st century nightmare of like everyone is always in the same room all the time, right? Yeah. But all we're all alone staring at our phones. So it's to switch gears a little bit, but that was a good segue. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Twitter. I mean, I know you're off Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. but I guess shit got weird on Twitter right now. I've never been a Twitter person, but um, are you following it all, the situation with the Musk takeover and the weird shit that's going on? And yeah, do you have any thoughts um, on that? <laughs> I think it's, well, I don't know. I mean, he sucks. Um, it's it's like, it's I, I, the only thing that really interests me about it is like, I'm interested in different kinds of power, right? And for a long time, Twitter was an example of the kind of um, soft power that the liberals and the leftists had. Um, there were always conservatives on Twitter, but like the like official voice of Twitter was sort of hegemonically lefty, right? Like the like, like the popular voice, the mm-hmm. dominant voice, and also under the old leadership of Twitter, the old ownership, the the hall monitors, right? The the uh the, the people who ran the show uh were also leftists and liberals um and so you you had things like you know um this is like famously you know one of the most famous cancellations of all time i think it was like 10 years ago um i think it was like maybe like the like the ultimate example of like what a cancellation would look like to do which is this woman justine sacco who tweeted an offensive joke Oh yeah. It was actually it was an attempt to be like an anti-racist joke, but it was really ill-advised. Um so she she said I'm I'm going to South Africa or whatever. I hope I don't get AIDS. And then she mm-hmm. said just kidding, I'm I'm white or whatever. And I think the idea was that like I don't know. She was trying to make some point about like white people having privilege or whatever, but so so what makes it an amazing story is yeah. she then got onto a plane to South Africa without cell phone service and so she didn't know yeah she became the obsession of hundreds of thousands of people on twitter and so she got off the plane to find that she had lost her job right like like she you know um but um like that's an example of the kind of like sort of soft power that twitter has their head and and that that liberals tend to specialize in right like cultural power social Mm -hmm. power um those uh that kind of power, though, like has its limits. And I think what Elon Musk, if nothing else, is very wealthy, he showed, hey, here's another kind of power. I'm just going to fucking buy this place, right? Right. And he bought it. He appears to be running it into the ground. By all accounts, he yes. has lost an enormous amount of money on this thing. And yet at the same time, he just, he, just, he, took, he took that soft power, which had been concentrated in Twitter for so long, and he just went, gone, right? It was just gone. Yeah. Um, and so it's really hard for me as someone who thinks that like, um, like abstract away from Twitter, right? Abstract away from that. Just like, um, I really don't like elite sort of 
discursive hege hegemony, right? Like, I don't like places where there's like a sort of gathering of elite voices mm -hmm. that is sort of self-policing and where anyone who says the wrong thing is going to get destroyed and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Musk sort of making Twitter no longer a cool place to be for many people, in that sense, makes me happy. But unfortunately, he's Elon Musk and uh, he sucks, right? And now it's just like, you know, um, a collection of a lot of the stupidest Pepe avatar, you know, like people that you can imagine. So it's a weird world. I mean, if you had told me, I, I mean, if you go back to 2020 when the George Floyd protests are happening and you say three, less than three years from now. Wow. Uh, this place that's super lefty and and just all about racial justice will be instead like uh, home to kind of 4chan style anarchic dopey conservatism. I, would, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting way of that you're like framing it because I it's like we can have all this like cultural soft power that we want, but like a billionaire can just still buy it out, which is why possibly we should deal with the issue of billionaires um yeah and like think about making this kind of thing a public utility i mean after we like strip away the like evilness of the algorithms that they use but yeah me and clementine were talking about how funny it is that there's all these people who like made twitter their like entire fucking yeah. life like these like people who are just like so fucking annoying you know and they yeah. just invested their whole souls into their twitter accounts and then now it's just being it's called x now apparently and elon oh musk God. is just like turning it like just 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 be like let's make everything be x you know like whatever um because he but, just likes the letter like it's just like <laughs> whatever right just, but like, it's absolutely tanking and it's so funny yeah but it's important to say it's like i said before like it's the problem is not really twitter right it's the whole concept of what if everybody was in a room at the same time right mm -hmm. and it's like it's funny because like people have sort of said that in like this like very idealistic thing like what if we were all hanging out in a room at the same time but like what the last 15 years of human life has proved is like everybody hanging out in the same room all the time is this a fucking nightmare right like there's a reason everybody doesn't hang out with each other most people yeah. don't like each other right there's a reason why everybody doesn't just squeeze into the same stadium and like we're hanging out together because like people have different desires they have different values they have different communication styles and like it's natural to break off into smaller little forums to discuss things that you like now, as I just got through saying, you've got that problem where, you know, you've got like vengeful Gilmore Girl fans sort of coming out of that yeah. thing. So it's not like small forums don't have their own problems. But I just think that like it's just it, it's, it shouldn't surprise anyone that if you stuff everybody into the same room at the same time, the result is just a lot of screaming. And especially like a room in which you can't see each other's faces or bodies, you know, like because it's like we are social creatures who like have evolved like body language for a reason you know and when we're just like disembodied words on a screen and you're like putting us all together with like people who we like really disagree with or have nothing in common with like of course it's going to be really hard for us to find any common ground and we're probably just going to get really irritated with each other yeah because in reality like people actually sitting in the same room together like over a meal look well yeah i was gonna say it looks like the fucking metro you know right. or the subway it's just like people just quietly sitting yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean but yeah um <laughs> Yo, so Freddie, uh, speaking of taking heat on Twitter, um, <laughs> you recently wrote an article saying that AOC uh, has basically stopped even pretending to be like a radical of any kind or even really mm -hmm. a leftist and that people should give up on her. And I guess by extension, the, on the idea of the DSA 
being able to influence the Democrats in any way. Um, you want to talk through that argument real quick for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't say that people should give up on AOC. I said that she's a, uh, just a Democrat, right? And the thing is, is like same thing, though, right? Well, it depends, right? Like, um, <laughs> partisan politics exists. The two party system exists. Nobody who get, who really cares about the sort of outcomes of politics in the world can completely ignore hmm. the two party system. Um, I, you know, we are we are condemned to having our to have our interests uh, defended by the Democrats. Unfortunately, um, I think what I'm trying to tell people to do through the the, the lens of AOC. So, the, first of all, um, the whole article is a series of decisions that uh, AOC has made that I think are dumb and bad, right? And that don't align with, align with my values. Uh, the way that a ton of people have sort of responded to it have been to just not engage with the substance of, right, of course. those specific things that I raised at all, right? Um, and I would so expect nothing like, less. Yeah, so it's, it's just like, of course, if you refuse to actually discuss the very specific legislative motive moments, I mean, like I'm saying, like, hey, here's a vote that she that she took that I think is the wrong vote. If you're just going to not discuss that in your response piece, then what's the point, right? Um, my point is that just like, like, look, like um, in 2016 with Bernie and for a while afterwards, there was a lot of hope that the sort of the Democrats were going to be heading in a, in a meaningfully more radical direction. And um, I had, you know, I have this sort of constant um, sort of condition where, you know, I have a ton of like lefty and radical friends and people I'm connected to. And some of them are more sort of mainstream liberal Democrats. And a lot of them are sort of like call themselves socialists, but still vote Democrat. And then you have like this group of people, many of whom I've known from basically my entire life, who are sort of real communists. And the commies always just say the same thing, which is they're just going to do the same thing again. You're lining yourself up for disappointment again. Bernie's a Bernie's a Democrat. Democrats do what Democrats do. This this time is not going to be different. Um, and I'm always forever getting my hopes up and being like, oh, no, it's different. Bernie's not the same. AOC's not the same. And in the long run, the commies are always right. Right. Like <laughs> I I don't I don't regret voting for Bernie twice. I don't uh, regret donating money to AOC. Um, I do think that like. I'm done pretending that there's some new radical vision of the Democrats that's going to be born, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, I'm I'm done sort of falling into the emotionalism of the moment and deciding that. And um, uh, that is, you know, um, it, it's not just AOC and Bernie, right? It's a whole lifetime of sort of uh, being told, well, now the Democrats are going to move in this direction and it never happens. So I took it. I just looked. The article is I laid out a whole series of, of decisions that AOC made that I thought were a betrayal of her principles as a socialist, um, uh, strategically made no sense politically. Uh, and I said, she doesn't seem to know what she's doing. She isn't really creating any real progress. It's not clear to me how things are better with her uh, as a, a, a as a, a rep representative than anybody else. And I'm, I'm sick of getting the wool pull, pulled over my eyes. Um, and I stand by that argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you doing that is just an example of what we were talking about earlier about, you know, when you take someone seriously or you take 
a politics seriously or you take someone's ideas seriously, then you also are willing to criticize them when you think that it is not making sense. So it's unfortunate that people who are criticizing you are not showing you the respect of actually being specific about what it is that they're disagreeing with instead of just being mad about it. Mm. Um, So in a kind of related question, um, we wanted to ask you what you think about Cornell West's third party candidacy. Do you have any thoughts and feelings? Yeah, I mean, great, right? Like, it's fine. Like, I, <laughs> I'm, you know, I, 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 I respect Cornel West a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I happen to be uh, feel personally indebted to him because um, uh, he is a fan of my first book uh, and praised it, and is like one of the only people who appears to have ever read uh-huh. it. So, um, <laughs> uh, and he, you know, everybody who knows him personally just adores him. Yeah, he seems like a really nice guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's look, yeah, I, 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 as, as an electoral, on an electoral level, the Green Party candidate will always be meaningless, right? But um, I think that uh, it's good to have another candidate running in the race to sort of say at every stop, hey, these two guys are bullshit. Here's what I'm about, and it's better. Um, and so, in in that uh, in that uh, spirit, uh, I appreciate it. Um, I don't think. That Ralph Nader cost uh, Al Gore the election. Al Gore was a, a horrible candidate who ran a, a horrible campaign and uh, far, far more hurt by uh, registered Democrats voting for uh, Republicans for George Bush in Florida than he was by Al, by, by uh, Ralph Nader. I don't think Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election. I think Hillary Clinton was always unelectable. So. Um, I don't uh, think much of the argument that he might give the election to Trump. Mm-hmm. Every every right. re- candidate is responsible for securing the votes necessary for them to get elected. And if they don't, it's nobody's fault but their own. Totally, totally. Okay, we've come to the most important question of all. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is that recently, the Your Country's Congress held a hearing about fucking UFOs. So what are your thoughts? Distraction, crazy people, hoax, possibly ancient dinosaur drones, uh, extra dimensional beings, perhaps. Okay, so this is the same guy who's <laughs> done this before, for the record. Um, I think there's a couple of things. The first is to say that he had he got explicit DOD clearance to say these things. So you have this very strange scenario where he's alleging a cover-up and that the DOD has all this stuff that they won't uh, share, but also he still works under the DOD and was given explicit permission by the DOD to share this stuff. So it's like, like what what's the version of events here, right? Like if the DOD. Okay, but wait, has... wait, wait, wait. So just to push back very slightly, it wasn't he also saying in the hearing that there was a bunch of stuff that he he couldn't discuss because he didn't have clearance to discuss it. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But the other thing is like, even he doesn't claim to have seen any of this stuff, right? Like, I think it's important to say he's not saying I saw interdimensional beings. He's saying someone told me they saw interdimensional beings, right? But like, there's the there's the Navy pilot guy who did say that he saw all, this, all the the Tic Tacs and stuff. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I want to believe. I want to believe. believe. You want to believe? I want to believe like everyone else. Um, <laughs> I don't trust spooks. Is my problem. I mean, that guy's a spook. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like he's that's that dude is a a product of the American military machine. It very well may be that there are there's aliens. It may very well be that even what he's saying specifically is true. But he, what he's saying, he's saying for a purpose that's conducive to what the military wants. Mm. And so until I hear it from some a source that is not a spook, I'm just not going to take it that seriously. What do you think that, the purpose is? I have no idea. Um, don't even want a conjecture distraction i don't know i mean but it might be something else going on they're trying to distract us from Hmm. Mm. 
Well, Freddie DeBoer wants to believe, so that I want to believe. For me. <laughs> yep. Um. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Freddie. Is there anything that you want to promote, or besides your book, or where should people go to get your book, and just what's going on with you lately for the fans? Uh, uh, Holly Elites stole. Uh, actually, I don't know why I'm showing you this on the <laughs> camera again. We're not on camera. Uh, how the elites, and I don't know the name of my own book. Apparently, uh, how elites <laughs> ate the social justice movement um, is out September fifth. Uh, it is available for pre-order. Um, if you don't like Amazon, it's at Barnes and Noble. If you don't like Barnes and Noble, then um, you can go to my website, frederickdebor.com, and there's a, a page there where you can buy the book from independent booksellers, so you don't have to put money into Amazon or Barnes and Noble if you don't want to. But yeah, um, you can check me out at freddydebor.substack.com. But uh, I would love it if you would get a, pick up a copy of the book. Amazing. Um, you should get Clementine to do the audiobook version <laughs> with her vocal fry. I don't get to choose that. It's one of the many, many things <laughs> I don't get to choose, if you can believe it. Yeah. Well, that sucks. Shocking. Um, okay, Freddie. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, we'll we'll get back in touch once the book is out. Sounds good.